0: The study of religion in China has a long history across a number of interrelated disciplines. In recent years, scholars have been reassessing past scholarship and synthesizing it in new ways. The three-volume project, Concepts and Methods for the Study of Chinese Religions, is one of the most exciting of these endeavors and establishes productive groundwork for future research. The contributions of this project evaluate the current state of scholarship, discuss a variety of analytical approaches and theories about methodology, epistemology, and the ontology of the field. The three books display an interdisciplinary approach and offer debates that transcend national traditions. The project engages with a variety of methodologies for the study of East Asian religions and promotes dialogues with Western and Chinese voices. In my conversation with Stefania Travagnin, professor at SOAS and co-editor of all three volumes, we discussed the catalyst for the project, co-editing and organizing a large interdisciplinary effort, how one can define Chinese religions, representative disciplinary approaches and themes of previous scholarship, Chinese keywords and categories for studying religion, the importance of regional and local contexts, diaspora communities, and global China, Religious Interaction and Cross-Tradition Approaches, and Future Directions to Advance the Field of Chinese Religions. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and without any further delay, here's my conversation with Stefania Trevagnin about her leadership for the Collaborative Project Concepts and Methods for the Study of Chinese Religions, whose three volumes were published by De in 2019 and 2020. Hello, Steffi. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you?
1: Hi, Christian. Stay well, given the circumstances. I'm very happy to be with you and talk <laughs> yes, about I'm, these books.
0: I'm glad we were able to connect. It's been uh, tricky with the the current circumstances, but. Uh, I'm excited to to talk about these uh, this this trilogy of volumes you have on uh, concepts and methods for the study of Chinese religions. Um, it's really an amazing collection. I'll just say from the get go, um, you you should feel very accomplished along with your your co-editors for producing uh, what surely will be um, a critical critical uh, text for moving forward. So thank you.
1: And also, yes, the co-editors and all the contributors, because, of course, this will never happen without all the voices that you can read in the three volumes.
0: Yeah. So um, we we always start a little bit about, um, in this case, the uh, editor. Um Learning a little bit about what brought you to the study of Chinese religions. So can you tell us a little bit about your, your background or training or um, mentors or moments in your life that kind of influenced uh, both your interest in your specific research, but then, uh, you know, what brought you to thinking about the study of Chinese religions more broadly?
1: Uh, Well, I am from Venice. So I think, and and I can say actually for sure that since I was a little child, I had all these stories about Marco Polo and the trip to China. And that is something that can trigger my, my interest for something that was not just my country or my comfort zone. And I was also lucky because since I was a child, I had these fairy tales books, uh, but not the usual one. Um, I had these collections of fairy tales from Middle East and China and Japan. Somehow, I was always very interested to know a little bit of what was happening on the other side of the world. And, and this is why it's one of the reasons why I started with Chinese studies. So I don't come uh, originally from religious studies, but from Chinese studies. And I enrolled um, Chinese studies in Venice and Kafoskari, where I did my laureate, which is at that time was a kind of BA and MA combined. And then I learned more about, for me, learning about China was a kind of starting point. Uh, I did also Hindi and I did some Sanskrit. And then I studied Japanese on my own. And it was the idea to start a a trip um, to the East, um, to places that I could not study in high school. Uh, We just hear a little bit about what happened outside Europe or North America when we are in high school. So there were a number of projects in my mind. I started with Chinese. I kind of get stuck in there um, in a good sense. I had very good teachers and I had this, um, my... My advisor for my laureate dissertation, this kind of MA dissertation, uh, who actually passed away just a few months ago, he had the idea that I had to go to Taiwan uh, for my MA dissertation. Originally, I wanted to work on Taoism, and I was very much, because I thought Taoism is Chinese, I don't really want to work on Buddhism. And Mm -hmm. He had this idea that um, I should have done some um, study of Taiwan, because at that time, there was not much uh, in terms of Western scholarship on Taiwan, especially on Buddhism and the book by Charles Jones was not out yet. Um, so I, I went to Taiwan and I was not happy about it at the beginning and then I fell in love with the place. Uh, so for my MA was about uh, Buddhist nuns in Taiwan and Buddhist women in Taiwan and within the context of the history of Taiwanese Buddhism. And somehow that is something that I also continued doing for my PhD because it was about a Buddhist monk. Uh, from China, but then moved to Taiwan. And then I did, I lived for years in Taiwan uh, between my MA and then before MA and PhD and then my PhD. And for my PhD, I went to London to uh, to the School of Oriental and African Studies, where I'm also based right now. Um, But then, of course, it was the study of uh, the community, within the community, uh, because I lived there. Uh, I of history. I was going back in history. So I started from the contemporary time, and then I look at, the moment of the um, Japanese occupation in Taiwan. And then I thought of this monk that I was working on for my PhD that actually was coming from mainland China. And, I, and I, so I went back to China somehow. And then I try always uh, since then to move between China and Taiwan to kind of uh, work on both in parallel um, and also in a comparative perspective. And my interest has always been today or somehow from the Republican period, from the late Chin, from the end of the 19th century up to today. And to see what is new, but to see the old values, how they've been reshaped um, in, the new, in, in the new era that was started um, since the late Chin onwards. So it was always a kind of kind of reception history of values, reception history of text. Uh, reception histories of practices and rituals so that is a kind of um, framework and kind of research line that I kept in my mind and then so after my PhD I continued working between Taiwan and China I have been teaching in, uh, in North America and in Canada for a few years and then I came back to Europe and after uh, how many years Eight, eight seven, eight years uh, seven, I believe, in um, in Groningen in the Netherlands. Uh, after I learned Dutch, I decided to go back to England. Uh, you see, I could say Groningen. Uh, that is a good <laughs> sign. Um, and and but I think my years in Groningen were um, very. I was very lucky. Um, the first few years I had a dean, Professor Kacumos um, a professor in the study of religion, and and very much attentive um, to discourses and, and patterns and methodology and theories. And, and of course, from more Western perspective, that somehow triggers some ideas um, that I already were developing at the time of my PhD, because even my PhD supervisor, Professor Brian Bokin was into the study of religion in terms of methodology and, and analytical concepts. And I think between my PhD supervisors and the dean that I had, the very the first dean that I had in Groningen, my first four years, so my stay there, um, it really pushed me to be to bring China within, let's say, as a global player. Take it China, not just something that is far, uh, but take it China as a global player, and so in dialogue with methodology, with um, religious phenomena that were happening also in the West. Uh, So not try to look at China with a kind of oriental way uh, or completely disconnected from Western discourses. And this, I think, is also something that has been happening in the project for these three books. So now I'm... Yes, so now I'm at SOAS. Well, technically. um, I'm in Italy, (laughs) but I work with (laughs) SOAS. because we're in the smart working time and I try to keep working on the reception history of values and ideas, um, pre-modern values and ideas in modern slash contemporary uh, China and Taiwan and also continuing the line of work that I've been doing for these three volumes.
0: Yeah, knowing, knowing more about your background now um, and reading through these three volumes, it, it makes a lot of sense how uh, the through lines between the volumes um, in terms of kind of the motivation uh, and the logics behind them. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about, um, the progression of this project? Because you, you, mentioned that there was kind of this spark that happened. Um, but then how did, how did it start to emerge? Um, as far as I know, as a series of events and then, um, continue on in terms of thinking about it as a a three volume, uh, edited collection, which is a, a large undertaking. So how, how did this all come together?
1: Um, Well, as a scholar in the field of Chinese religion, because, of course, I I say I work on Buddhism, and that's true, most of my publications are on Buddhism, Um, but it's very difficult when you are there in the field to make these very clear um, boundaries between one tradition and the other. So uh, let's say I prefer to call myself as someone a scholar of religion and Chinese society. Um, but as a Western scholar, mostly trained in Western academia, uh, but also with long stays abroad in, in China and Taiwan. So I'm also used to Chinese academia. I'm used to live within the subject of my own studies or so within the religious community. I, I start thinking, how how should I approach my topic and how should I write about my topic in terms of methodology, in terms of theories to be applied, in terms of um, terminology, um, analytical categories, concepts that we use to frame our work, and, and I found myself always pausing before using the term religion, before using the term science, before using many terms uh, in my writing, and that this is something that has been happening to other scholars, so I'm not unique in that, and this is something that you can find also in other publications that came out from the 90s onwards, and, and so when I was at Groningen, I decided to pause and and I say, well, I think it would be nice to reflect critically on how we approach our object of study. And and, and so um, try to look at, even to think about religion, that is another problematic term that is also included in in these three volumes, but try to think what has been done so far in the study of Chinese religions in terms of topics, um, in terms of how topics are investigated, in terms of approaches that have developed, and so start questioning uh, the terminology and the analytical categories that we use. And, and this is, for me, uh, as a scholar in the field, this is something that we all, we all do at the, at the very end because we do research, but we also start rethinking our theoretical framework uh, in the middle of the research. So research is conducive somehow to rethink theories and methodology. And this is, a, as I said, this is a concern, uh, methodological and conceptual concern that all my colleagues I think share. And so this this is why I didn't really wanna write a book about it, but I wanna have a conversation with other scholars, um, that focus on China, on religion, on cultural assistance, you know, there are different ways to you to, to talk about um the study of Chinese religions and then and, and, and but to talk with scholars coming from Chinese academia, Taiwanese, Cantonese, North American, Europe and focusing, coming from different training, um, anthropologists, sociologists, historian, scholars working on from text. Um, so I try to have um, different disciplines um, and different academic environment, all included, and try to Think together, uh, what are we doing and how can we improve what we are doing? I thought also it was a very right time, the time when I started thinking of doing this. It was the end of second half of 2014. And I thought it was a right time because we we are seeing in the study of Chinese religions in the modern time. So I have to say, as, as I said before, my interest is mostly in the modern time. But we, I didn't use the term modern in the volumes. I used it in the conference, but then one of the colleagues, uh, one of the presenters of the conference and contributors to the volume, uh, more than one actually said, we should drop the term modern because then you're building a kind of um, you know, a boundary and border. So there is a pre-modern and there is modern, but this, there, is, there is a, a rupture in certain sense, but there is also a kind of fluidity and, 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 and continuity of ideas between pre-modern and modern. That is why there is no modern in the title of the three volumes. But we are addressing um, communities and, and religious phenomena that are present today, that were also present in the past. Some of them, some of them were not. Um, mm-hmm. But we are also looking at continuities and not just rupture between pre-modern and modern. I thought it was a good time to stop and, and think about the ideas and concepts because we have already a few generations of scholars that have been writing about modern China, um, scholars and not scholars. Um, we have a number of explorers, missionaries, photographers. So different categories of individuals would actually travel to China and collect material and publish about it. And somehow this is the very first generation of works that we, of data, uh, that we can base our analysis on. And then you have another generation from the 60s and the 70s, and, and when it comes to Buddhism, certainly Holmes Welch is the first name that comes to mind. And, and So after this few generations, I really wanted to to think how we can proceed with the field. And and it's also a very nice time because right now it's easier to be connected to Chinese scholars and Taiwanese scholars. It's easier to go there. We have different and, and much more advanced research tools to do our research. So it's a very nice time to, um, to give a push and to encourage the development of the field. Something also that was important for me in this project was, you know, we very often we talk about decolonize um, the curriculum what well, at least at SOAS, we talk about that very often,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but also other universities. And and this is, we I, I did want um, participants from China and Taiwan, from other academic settings um, to also have their voice in it, um, because, you know, we are trained in a particular way. We Western scholars train in Western academia, we are trained in a particular way, and it's very interesting to have a confrontation with scholars that are trained in a very different way, um, and so the, this is also something very important that I wanted to have in this project. And then the final one, um, there is a colleague of mine from the Pontifical University um, in Rome, Alessandro Delorto, that said something very nice about. Uh, it was about a book, uh, an edited collection that he made about Chinese religions, and he said, you know, this book, of well, the way that to study China is to have um, to present lessons. Um, about China, but also to take lessons from China. So an idea was have a look of how Chinese scholars, Taiwanese scholars, Cantonese scholars, or um, Japanese scholars uh, actually writing and thinking about Chinese religions and and use maybe those methodologies and ideas, not just for the study of Chinese religions, but really taking China as a global player and maybe using these new ideas might be applied also to Western religion, to Western phenomena. So that was another aim of the project. As you said, it was made of many, many uh, steps. So I, um, mm-hmm. first of all, I apply for grants like we all do in our field. And I was, and I'm very, very grateful to the Jan Foundation for International Scholarly Exchange and the kanave that is the Royal Dutch Academy of Arts and Science. Um, for their um, financial support, and, and then I organized this conference. was the end of was in December two thousand fifteen, in Groningen, and it was organized in different days. Uh, one day we were really looking at the what is the status quo of the field, what kind of studies have been published about the different tradition, different religious tradition, and mind you, not just. Buddhism and Taoism, we also look at Christianity and Islam, Um, we look at Tibetan Buddhism in a particular way, we start, even when we were looking at the history of the field, we start uh, questioning uh, certain ideas, ideas of revival of religion, for instance, the idea of religion rescuing the nation, Um, but at the same time, we should also rescue religion from the nation, as a way to really look at the, what the community were living and practicing. So try to get out from some official uh, normative framework and to look at religion in a different way. There was the idea of bordering that was also reframed in some of these papers. And then we look at methodology um, and disciplinary approaches. So what, what, how is the field of ethnography, for instance, of textual studies or of, of, of political uh, science And then in that respect, also looking, when you look at, for instance, the political science, um, there are two chapters uh, by Susan McCarthy in the book later on, Susan McCarthy and and Andrea Liberté. They were looking, Andrea was looking at, at Chinese scholars, so how Chinese scholars are discussing religion and Political science and how non-political scientists in China may actually have a more constructive and fruitful look at religion um, and and be because I've, uh, let's say are not are in a different being in a different field give them more freedom to um, to actually live, and, and more and, and different ways and different venues to think about religion while in the West it seems that when you talk about religion in political science religion is quite marginal. And then should be more present given the role that religion, religious communities have in in politics. So we're looking at different discipline. And then after that, we move to concepts. And that was super tricky because what do you mean by concepts? Um, Because then you can fall into the uh, let's check all the Western concepts. But the idea was to look at Western concepts and Chinese concepts. Um, I have to say that when I was planning this conference, I had a look of all works that I've been reading recently um, of concepts, so rethinking concepts in the study of Chinese religions, and there are plenty uh, of them, Uh, at least I think were six or seven that I took, that were published from uh, late 90s up to, and then some of them were published actually after, uh, I knew about, but were published after the conference. Um, and, and, and some of them were saying very clearly that um, so each of them were looking at concepts in, in, in one way or another. So either looking at Western concepts or looking at Western concepts, but say, well, you should not just look at the term religion, education, but also look at innate, innate native concepts that you have in China that might not have um, a, a translation in English or in any other language. So try to look at the native concepts of China and try to look at how they are actually the kind of value that they have within the religious landscape and then try to find a balance and try to find some negotiation between the Western concepts and the Chinese concepts and and if you really look at the religious landscape uh, in this case modern religious landscape you can find that a number of ideas like science for instance that um, the term per se was was a new term but the idea of scientists was present even in pre-modern China um, so there was a kind of reevaluation of certain ideas that were already there, were just not named in a certain way. So we, um, I kind of selected some concepts, um, some of them coming from more like Western frame concepts and some other more Chinese native concepts. And, and we discussed that. It was kind of two days. And then after that, we have a round table um, Chair by uh, Kokumon Stukrad, and so I really wanted someone from the Western academic study of religion um, to have a final conversation of how the conference went, what were the missing points, what we should change, and what we should, uh, where we should go from there. And then is when there was the idea of publication coming up, and and fortunately or unfortunately, there was also the <laughs> idea to have not one book. That's when I started losing my hair and sweating and and said, have more than a book and not just the papers that were presented at the conference, which makes sense um, because they were missing points. We didn't have, we had Christianity and Islam represented quite well. Um, we had Tibetans, we, we really lack more. Um, we needed more about more ethnic minorities, um, a kind of better look at ethnicity, the value of of ethnicity, the idea of transnationalism, the idea of networks, for instance, Um, the idea of vegetarianism was not present at the conference. Well, actually, we talk about sharing food, food sharing in Christian churches. So we kind of broke up, um, we wrote a list of what should have gone in, in the publication and what was missing and who we should call. And then it was the second fun part because the conversation continued with the publication. So the publication was, um, and yet num- a number of more people joined for the publication and that uh, I have to say I learned a lot. Um, uh, um, from these books also i learned that I will never do another trilogy anytime soon <laughs> and 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 I've been very lucky um, to have three co-editors that I think should be named um I asked for help <laughs> I, I think it's still in the recording of a conference when I said three volumes I'm not really doing that um, and some volunteers, some are was asked so we decided to divide the um, um, to divide the, the project into three books. One about history of the field and disciplinary approaches. So really look at what has been done so far uh, in all different religious traditions and what kind of approaches have been used and where to go from there. Also suggestion on how to improve the field. And Andrea Liberté, a political scientist from the University of Ottawa, He has been doing amazing work on um, Buddhism and politics, but also um, looking at ethnic minorities, um, care um, and humanitarian uh, activities. So he has been looking at China and Taiwan as well. And I've known him for many years. So it was my. Great honor to have him as co-editor of this volume. It was also good because I come from Chinese studies and religious studies, and then he's coming from political science. So, you know, very different fields. So we had a very, very nice conversation. We also co-wrote a chapter uh, on the chapter on um, the status quo of a scholarship on Han Buddhism. Um, then there was the concepts thing um, that I was very ready to have it in one volume, but um, Paul Katz was one of the speakers and then became the co-editor of one of the two volumes, made the right observation that there are different ways to look at concepts. And some of the papers um, that were presented were really lo- doing kind of um, intellectually, interle- intellectual history of concepts, like Kazalek kind of um, uh, conceptual history. Um and, and and some others were looking at concepts in practice, um, and so in the practice of, 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 of rituals, for instance, of of um, so religious practice. and then these were very different ways to look at concepts. and and for some concepts it was better to do it in one way, but also it's looking at who is the author, some authors, me, I did more pretty much an intellectual history of idea of education, uh, looking at um, try to understand what I meant first explain what I meant by education and then looking at different um, Chinese terms that have been used, so Chinese really expression that have been used in the history of China and different institutions and then focusing on the modern time. And that was really pretty much an intellectual history, but there were other chapters that were focusing more on religious practice. So we decided to have one volume on intellectual history of key concepts, I think is the correct title. And the other one, religion, in, um, key concepts in, in practice, in religious practice. And so Pocat who is a, um, a scholar at Academia Sinica and the Institute of Modern History. Uh, and, and I think everyone knows, he's a very well known scholar uh, of, of Taoism and the one really calling popular religion, but you know what I mean, um, in, <laughs> in both China and Taiwan. Um, And so he he was the co-editor of the volume about practice. And Gregory Adam Scott, um, who is a cultural historian of Buddhism and focusing also on the Republican period, mostly, and and now going a little bit also in the 1950s, um, who is right now a lecturer at the University of Manchester. Um, as a co-editor for the Intellectual History of Key Concepts. So this is how we have these three volumes. We have three co-editors, thank goodness. Um, They were extremely helpful. And and to be honest, this is, is a lot of work to edit volumes, but I also learned that it's a lot of fun and you really learn a lot because it's not just your work, it's the work of other scholars and you learn from them. And 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 you also it was very nice also to make connection between one vo- one volume and the other because there are plenty of connection. Um, there is one chapter about gender, in in the volume on religion in practice and um, key concepts in practice. And 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 then that that com- But the the way that the chapter about gender by Alan Valusini was um was written, it was really looking at the ideas about gender that develop in China, but. Uh, but also looking at practice. So it, it is a very long chapter that we kept in volume three, but we give a kind of idea um, very clearly in the introduction that this is a chapter that should have been part also volume two because there was um, an argumentation on how Chinese, and, and especially looking at religion, um, they start conceptualizing ideas that we may label gender, uh, but of course they were labeled in different um, cultural settings. Um and, and and others. So for instance, the, the one of Buddhism are pretty much interconnected also the one of Islam and Christianity. Um and as I said, it was it was lots of work, but it was very good to look at these sets of concepts and 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 rethinking, really try to rethink the field. It was also very good that I'm not the only one doing this kind of work. As I said before, I'm not unique. I was brave to have three volumes, but I'm not unique. Um, I think it was in, in no, I think, I think in 2018, um, there was another conference in Hong Kong uh, organized by Mark Mullenbold. Uh pretty sure, I don't know if he had added any other collaborator, but he was also in touch with me because he knew about the conference and the volumes and he was preparing a, con- a conference on critical terms for Chinese religious studies done in a very different way. Um, So looking at one concept and and starting from the Chinese term and then seeing how different tradition in China have actually been adopted that particular concept. And then, and that is also something that I'm part of now, Christian Mayer, who was uh, in the audience of the conference in Groningen, started a project uh, on concepts again. Uh, So kind of mapping religion in China and looking at how concepts of religion have been changing, going from traditional modern Chinese. It's a project that started in 2017 and, and will be going on at, at least until 2023. And again, a different way to look at concepts. So in this case, it's really looking at one uh, concept, but then we also have a problem um, whether to start from the Western semantic value of that Chinese term or from the Chinese semantic value of that particular term. We look at Xin, the, the character for faith, belief, and trust and how different tradition in the pre-modern and in the modern uh, have been using or addressing that particular term. So you see, it's a a different kind of project on concepts, but very much uh, within the same framework and within the same idea. And I think it's also a collaborative idea. And this is something that I believe should be done more and more often to have more scholars coming from different backgrounds and different uh, religious and fieldwork experiences, um, discussing challenges in how to frame uh, our study. Uh, this is pretty much the history of the project, and which, as I said, now I'm continuing somehow uh, through the project <laughs> of Christian Meyer, uh, but I'm not editing those volumes. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, um, that's great. You really t- took us through uh, the the whole uh, shebang there. Um, there's, there's lots of directions we could go. Um, perhaps for people that maybe are not, uh, as familiar with, uh, the study of religion in China, um, the first volume, you guys do a great job of kind of laying out both, um, perhaps some of the the popular methods or approaches, uh, or patterns that have happened in the past, but then you also propose some, some interesting, uh, future directions in terms of uh, ideas about kind of uh, critical interdisciplinarity, um, th- this idea yeah. of religious interaction that you mentioned uh, earlier in your own work and your own training. Um, and then uh, kind of a the, the patterns of both kind of regional or local exploration um, and then also the expansion of thinking of a kind of global China. Um, so... Perhaps could you, for, for, for maybe people that aren't as familiar with the field, or maybe they're only familiar with one uh, tradition or something like this, um, what do you see as some of the kind of um, the, the broader patterns from the past? And then what are some of these future directions uh, you've, you've laid out?
1: Okay. Well, um, looking at yes, I think I can if I give a kind of overview, uh, chapter by chapter, as it can give a very much an idea of um, what we what we have seen as part of the field. Um, the, the introduction of the first volume I, I, is much longer than the other introduction because we really want to lay the ground uh, also for the other volumes, and we identify the problems in talking about religion or religions uh, the problems in say i write a book on taoism and uh, so the problem in creating this kind of exclusiveness of one tradition instead of the other and then there are plenty of discussion about how to go about that um whether to use the word religion whether to use the word religions and so there's a kind of problems in these artificial borders among traditions and and, and these are problems that come up also uh, in the scholarship then there is a problem of what I would call—I don't think we call it that way in the volume—but I, I would call it atomized scholarship. Um, so the idea that study of religion is one thing, and then there is people doing sociology. So this uh, separation from um, of the study of religion from other fields, and, and, and that is problem number problem number two that we uh, that we discover, and the reason why we wanted to rethink the field and try to give um, direction for the future. Um, And uh, for instance, we started with a chapter, and the book started with a chapter by Jan von uh, a sociologist that I've been, and I think it was very nice because his chapter really gives an idea of what is the problem of talking about religion when it comes to China? Um, what can be defined as religion? All these labels that we use, the label of popular religion, and, and what we mean by that, is Confucianism a religion? A question that he also asked. He also created a table um, of um, how to uh, classify the different religions, the different religious system that we have in China and this is pretty, it was a kind of overview of what has happened so far, um, including these artificial borders between one tradition and the other that we find in scholarship. And, and, and the final chapter of that book by Van San Gossard, Gossard is from proposing a different way to look at religion and looking at the history of ideas as a kind of venue where you have social sciences and humanities emerge and, and, and also looking at particular themes, um, the themes of text, um, that some, sometimes ancient text seems to belong into the past, uh, but ancient text has a continuous life. So ancient texts keep living even today. So he was proposing different um, areas of research, but also the idea to look at a kind of neutral venue, where you have the different disciplines from social science and humanities that they can interact in a more constructive way and he found history of ideas is a very nice venue for it um, the chapter by alex Payet is kind of taking the call uh, the question of Yan from what is confucianism and try to explore the kind of scholarship we have in confucianism and scholarship that has been created by the same Confucian somehow by the way that we have seen Confucianism Confucianism as a religion, Confucianism as part of um, a state building movement, different groups of religion, uh, different groups of Confucian sorry. And we have China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. So it really deconstructed the idea of Confucianism in contemporary time and look at uh, in modern time, the 20th century, from the late Qing and 20th century. And really look at the different ways that we discuss Confucianism also create. Uh, labels or categories wherein you can include Confucianism. Two chapters that were for me that I really loved to have um, was the chapter on Islam, and I think it's something that maybe you Christian had looked in a particular way. Um, and, and really, uh, Waip tried to look at what has been done so far, the, diff- the study of Islam in China, and as Islam as part of and. An, a more global idea of Islam, but also a number of topics that have not been studied yet—the um, idea of gender, women uh, in um, Chinese Islam, for instance. So he kind of proposed new venues, new um, new topics that could have been explored. The chapter on Christianity by Chris, um, Christopher Daly was interesting because it's kind of proposed the problem, the problem of the very first works that we have by missionaries. So yeah, Western theologians writing about uh, Western Christianity in China. So then the problem is How can we give more voices to Chinese Christians also? So, he was proposing a more Sinocentric approach to the study of Chinese Christianity. So, to be Sinologians and not just Sinologists, for instance. Um, So, giving the voice also to non-missionaries, giving the the, the number of non-Western that actually are practicing Christianity in China. Um, the chapters on pol- political science. I already said before Susan McCartin looking at Western scholarship and what can be done. Um, what, what need more need to be done on the role of religion uh, in the way that religion can influence Chinese politics and not just keep it religion as a marginal element in political science. And she was looking at Western scholarship. While Andre La Liberté uh, has been very attentive to how. Um, to a kind of knowledge from fragmentation is an expression that he used and how Chinese scholars who are not political scientists can be less normative in their approach and so propose and and so include more um, about the relationship between religion and politics in their work, for instance. So you have more work in there about religion and politics than known from Chinese political scientists. There were a number of chapters on Buddhism. Um, Mian and Date. Try to look at what has been done, and in Han Buddhism, we look at that the famous the, the issue of revival, uh, whether or not we can talk about revival, the different debates, Chinese debates and Western debates, and the use of revival for the study of Chinese religion. Can we really say? And the same book by Holmes Welch talk about revival of Buddhism in China. He used the term revival, but then he questioned it at the end of the book. Uh, so can we really do that? And, and what are the kind of research lines that are going on. What is this humanistic Buddhism or Buddhism for the human realm has been trans- Ren has been translated in many ways and what actually is um, in China and for Chinese. Um, and, and we also spent some time to discuss the, the emerging studies on women in Buddhism, uh, in Chinese Buddhism, that are now becoming more and more numerous and then give a better idea to a, a part of Chinese religious history, um, especially especially when it comes to Buddhism, and not just Buddhism, that is often not told. Uh, so, you know, history becoming more a history of a man, and where we should give also kind of voice to these hidden actors that are women in the Buddhist communities. Um, Brian Nichols look at both um, the discipline of ethnography and, and using Buddhism as a case study, and the advantages to have, as you look at four case studies, the advantages to have more possibility to have ethnographic and, and firsthand fieldwork and results. but also the importance to have more dialogue between anthropologists, for instance, and people who, and scholars who know about doctrine and text as a way to have a more comprehensive view of a community that ethno- ethnographers actually studied. And Emmy Holmes Takchundarpa look at Tibetan Buddhism, but kind of try to map the creation and recreation of Tibet. Um, she looked at three Western figures, ethnographers, photographers, politician, um, explorer, and then three Chinese um, historians, uh, again and, and photographer or monk, how they were um, creating Tibet through their own work, and then how we can go from there to kind of reconceptualize the idea of borderland and uttering that uh, has been often used in the study of Tibetan Buddhism. So at the end of that, after presenting what has been done and how the disciplines have been um, our view of how the disciplines have been um, evolved, um, we said, what can we do in the future? And the future for us is looking, as I said, the rescuing religion from the nation so try to look more at local religion, um, so kind of regional focus, a kind of micro context, but at the same time being aware of a of 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 the presence of a global China that appears more present in the in the volume two and three, the one on concepts, how China is indeed a global actor, is indeed part of our community because we do have networks. Uh, so we talk about transnational movements, for instance, in the other two volumes. So China is part of, of a global world, and we should also keep that in consideration when we uh, approach, uh, when we really look at the disciplinary approaches to the study and that's something that we because we we were really pushing for more interdisciplinary interdisciplinary investigation and we made up this expression or try to have a new discipline called biological discipline where going back to what Gossard said where you can actually have a venue and also methodology that allow more perspective emic and ethic perspective and, and and looking at doctrine and texts but and looking at communities so where Really different training can come together to give a comprehensive view of religion. So this is kind of um, summary, uh, volume one in a nutshell. Uh, and we really hope on, from now onwards to have really more, especially of both local study of local tradition and and local communities, far from the official normative um, patterns of religion in China and promote more interdisciplinary um, and and teamwork um, for evolving the field.
0: Yeah, it's great. And as somebody who works, uh, you know, in, uh, I guess, the subfield of, of, of Muslims in China, um, it was really interesting to kind of see how uh, that subfield kind of um, parallels or interacts with um, these other subfields or other tradition-based kind of exploration and I think your um, your kind of proposals for moving forward, I think, would really uh, be be very helpful. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, I you know and the, others uh, can, can do that.
1: The, um, well, I think you in your work you do that. Um, but that the, you know, when I'm in China, yes, of course, you see Christians and you see Christian churches, but I, are Chinese Christian churches? So it's very, it's really very. Difficult to separate. Also, the way that they speak. I mean, I'm, um, I'm more aware of the Christian than the Islamic um, part. Mm-hmm. Um, they use "tsupe," <laughs> that is, mm-hmm. that is compassion in Buddha. So the, the kind of terminology that they have been using. At the beginning, that was not the very first term that was used to um, translate compassion in a Christian context in China. Hmm. If you look at the history of the catechism, um, but now they use, for yeah. instance, Buddhist terminology. So um, there is a continued dialogue among communities um, and more on a local level. That that's why it's very difficult to say work on China. Um, and, and we say that, <laughs> um, but we are not really doing that. Um, because yeah. especially if you do fieldwork, you work on one particular area, mm-hmm. and, and you look at how that area and the history of that area is also affecting the community, and 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 space is becoming and something that is has been kind of conceptualized a little bit in in, in one of the other two volumes, uh, but not enough. As something that I'm using now in my new research, but uh, space is a, it's, you know we we work in a particular space and in a particular time, and 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 so we need to adapt our framework to address that particular space at that particular time. Um, yeah. And
0: th- that's a that's a good segue because um, the the second volume focuses on this this intellectual history of key concepts, kind of taking a, a, a keyword uh, type approach, uh, but it kind of flips it in the sense that, that you're focusing on um, Chinese language terminology as opposed to kind of uh, imposing some sort of Western terminological uh, conceptualization on it. So um, can, can you talk about yeah. um, some, some of the key terms that arose from uh, your guys' conversations and uh, that were included in the volume?
1: Yes, well, the, the idea was how to find, as I said, the balance between Chinese uh, and non-native concepts, um, because you, can, you, you cannot avoid the Western one either. Uh, Many scholars in China are actually training the West. So somehow they're also using Western ideas to frame their own studies. Um, And, you know, speaking of the global world. um, But we were looking at, um, for me, it was important to have, again, a chapter on Islam, um, because very often, as you know, Islam or Christianity are not really seen as Chinese religions, so are not part of many um, comprehensive discussion on Chinese religions. And I asked Tsai Yuan Lin from Taiwan to um, to choose actually um, a, a Chinese term that he thought he was um, good to, of, 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 how he would have um, approached. So what kind of concept he would have selected? Um, to represent um, dialogue and debates within the Islamic commun- the Muslim community in, in China, in then. And he works from um, the Qing period and also the Republican period. And Tsai Yun-Ling wrote a chapter on how uh, Muslims try to uh, negotiate their own terminology, looking at and adopting, uh, critically, of course, terminology coming from Chinese Buddhism or especially Confucianism. Um, and he was looking at Sharia on the one hand and the Confucian legal system on the other hand. so and 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 they analyzed a few names of a few scholars and how um, Islamic scholars and how they were really using Confucian ideas to reframe uh, and to express Islamic ideas. And you know the problem of translation. That this was the same problem that you have with Chinese Buddhism, just a little bit earlier on. Um, and so that is an example of how you can balance the foreign ideas and, um, in this case, the Islamic ideas and and the Confucian ideas of so the native Chinese ideas. Um, other concepts that we look is dia uh, um, or and uh, but mostly yeah, so Jason Clower uh, kind of taking on the discussion that Tsai Yun-ling was making. So how you have two different um, groups, two different traditions that have to dialogue. And so how they can, um, how one that, in this case, was Islamic was adopting Chinese Confucian ideas to express themselves. And, and Jason Clower saw how Confucians and modern Buddhists in early 20th century were somehow, even if belonging to two different traditions, were somehow related nonetheless. Uh, So he talks about genetic relatives. He said we should really think of jia, uh, that means family, that means school, the same way that we look at zong pai, for instance, this particular term. And uh, he also goes into details about how we use the term zong, of zong zong jiao and zong pai, and and try to rethink the use of jia uh, not as a strict and, and exclusive identity marker, but to have a kind of, to look at lineage in a more fluid sense. So try to uh, really question the semantic spectrum that the term "ja" could mean. So in that sense, if you really look at that Chinese term in a, from a different perspective, you can actually say that Neo-Confucianists um, in early 20th century and modern Buddhists were relative somehow or belonging to the same family because they were exposed to the same intellectual atmosphere, we're responding to the same challenges. Uh, so he's kind of really rethinking the um, the, the use of the term Jia. Um, we have a chapter on religion of Zun Ziao. of course, I think it was necessary to have it, a Ya Guo um, wrote about it uh, and, and looking at the Christianization of this concept and, and Chen Xiu and, and especially his particular uh, contribution to the um, to the conceptualization of the idea of Zongjiao and religion in China, thinking that Zongjiao is religion, but also taking Zongjiao and religion as two different things. And taking on there, Adam Chow, uh, he used the term jie, uh, shi jie de jie, so the, 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 the same character that means word sometimes, and, and see how in contemporary time, but also in the Republican period, you have a number of things that have something, something jie, and he's talking about the venuization of elements. And he realized how zongjiao, so religion, now also has a Zhongjiao jie. So there is a religious sphere. That's how he translates this jie, it as a sphere that is something that you do see in the public domain, you do see in the public discourse uh, in China. So it's a kind of venuization process um, that characterizes all the recent social history of China and right now also characterize religion. So here it's looking at one particular character, um, but try to see not just in religious in, 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 the the, um, the effect of religion, but say how religion is participating. Um, um, it, it, really, a discourse, the Venuization discourse. There are four chapters on Buddhism, and even here we try to make a balance between um, Western concepts and Chinese concepts. Um, so, for instance, me, I, I have this uh, obsession with education. I think it's because I teach too many courses. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have an obsession with education and of of Buddhism. Um, so how Buddhist um, sangha educate themselves? So the training of sangha, but also the kind of education that Buddhists give to the non-sangha, to um, uh, to the lay people. And uh, and I, and me was try to find try to define what I mean by education. So really, uh, learning and teaching. And how this concept of being conceptualized in pre-modern time, uh, looking also at Confucianism, and then throughout the history of Chinese Buddhism, how we have different terms, expressions that have been used to define this particular idea. What are the kind of uh, problematic relations between learning the disciplines, learning the rules, and, and, and learning, so knowing the rules was learning, and then became then the rules and learning became two separate things. So, um Really, the evolution also of the of the contents of this learning and the different institutes and in form of um, school systems that have started. And I focus more on the Sangha training uh, and I didn't really look at the others. But so I look at one particular idea of education, which I define in a certain way, and then all the different Chinese characters, expressions that have been used, and how each of them had a particular meaning um, according to the context that it referred to. Gregory Adam Scott to look at scripture. He did, uh, um, he's a scholar that worked a lot on printing. And so the idea was, you know, scripture, the word, um, and the text has always been a kind of sacred value and how this sacredness has been. So the question was, did this sacredness change when you start printing in the way that you start printing in the Republican period? So the mass production of text that did have any effect on, on the value on the sacred value of, of text per se and and then and then his answer was no it was just a different uh, way to access and availability of a text but even if in in produce uh, even if it was a mass production that didn't really affect in the modern time the sacred value and the kind of semantic and and, and qualitative value that text gene use especially the term gene scripture actually had uh, so kind of continuity here from the pre-modern to the modern. Esther Bianchi look at Jiu, um discipline Vinaya, and, and in the modern time and it, even here she does a very nice excursus of uh, the different form of disciplines in Chinese Buddhism in pre-modern time and then what changed in the modern time and what change in the modern time is transnationalism, is China being more connected with the non-China, is the role is again the search for original Buddhism and, and this, this uh, Chinese being keen to know about non-Chinese Buddhism and also to know about non-Chinese discipline and, and, and how the uh, respect to the rules were seen as a way to restore a Buddhism that was not seen as a correct Buddhism anymore. So here you see how Jiyu, this particular Chinese term, is, is actually has a very, very rich value that goes beyond uh, the simple translation. And and Eric Armstrong, who wrote a book about science in Chinese Buddhism, don't ask me exactly the title because I'm very bad with titles. Um, <laughs> and he it's a kind of um, they further he brought further reflection uh, on the basis of his work on science and scientism, noticing that yes, some terms are new in China, um, and they come from Bitcoin in Japan, they want to uh, refer to non-Chinese elements, that's true, but the idea of scientists was present in China even in the pre-modern time, just expressed in a different way. So in this sense, he also tried to balance uh, the concept of science, and with native idea of scientists that were present also in pre-modern China, and like Gregory Adam Scott did, kind of show continuity, of his emphasis on scientists. It's just the intellectual framework, based historical framework change, and therefore also the way that things were framed in China and by scholars, after all, have, have, have been different. The final chapter by Annabella Pitkin was about environment. Um, and it was nice to have a chapter about environment and circular space because we really wanted to have some conceptualization of space, and here not from the Han. So somehow, like in chapter, like in book one, I try to have a kind of cycle, really, um, in in the in the order of chapters, uh, in cha- also in volume two. So the first chapter was about non-Han, and the last chapter is also about not Han, um, because China has more than fifty ethnic minorities, and we need to remember that. So she, she was looking at environmentalism how it's been conceptualized by Tibetans, also looking at specific Tibetan terms how the sacredness, the idea of sacred, the idea of space they've been conceptualized in, in Tibet by Tibetans and uh, by Buddhists and by the bond. So she's looking at both traditions. And of course, being Tibet, she tried to relate certain form of conceptualization to the particular political position of Tibet in China today. So somehow she's kind of linking this idea of uh, environmentalism that has been developed in Tibet to uh, kind of a way to respond to some other form of challenges that Tibet was living at that time. So even here, and in this, um, in this volume, we really wanted to balance, not just to think of Western concept and Chinese concept, uh, but within Chinese concept, going beyond the Han ethnicity, uh, because that is also another big um, danger that we have. Very often, I myself working on Han Buddhism to really look at Han. Uh, religion but China is much more richer than that. Um, and of course in what where we go from now, um, m- most of these chapters're looking at one or two religious tradition. Um, but I, the, the best idea would really be to look at the, one particular Chinese concept, Chinese ca- um, analytical category and how it has been, addressed by many religious traditions somehow this is what Christian Meyer is doing in his project which is a very nice continuation of this one if you like looking chronologically because it's looking at one concept how it has been uh, used and what kind of semantic value this concept had in different time and in different traditions so that is our call on how to what to do from here and to don't not forget that we have non-Han traditional languages. Uh, there should be languages also because Annabella and then another chapter in in the volume three uh, also use non-Han language um, because ethnic minorities have their own language. That's something that, if, you know, if you work on China, you also need to deal with that. So looking at more core concepts in non-Han traditional languages, looking across traditional patterns and, and also traditional concepts Chinese traditional concepts um, not just how they have changed, if they have changed in modern time, but also what does it mean to to have a Chinese community overseas and, and whether and how this being overseas might have affected the way that they use particular concepts. So there is an invitation to look at more at the development of uh, of reshaping of traditional concepts in diaspora communities. So that was a kind of the end of the volume and invitation to, to continue to work on this new vocabulary. And,
0: and in the third uh, volume, uh, you could, you, authors are already kind of implementing some of these kind of transnational or global approaches yeah. and, uh, kind of, uh, non Han focused approaches. Um, but the big shift for the third volume is thinking about, uh, the kind of conceptual history, um, in practice, um, through kind of a lived religion, so to speak. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about how, how does, uh, this kind of conceptual history change when we're thinking about, um, key terms or, or key words through practice?
1: Um, when, when you look at practice, you look at specific practice. So again, you go to a micro context. um, And when you look at lived religion, you also look at specific communities. And very often when you look at this particular uh, practice, uh, you notice that they are challenging some overarching regional and more official pictures of Chinese religion. So that is why it's important to look at religion in practice, because then you're really forced to look at selected communities. Then, of course, um, the study of concepts in practice also address what I call the enactment of these concepts into form of rituals. And and these can generate new institutionalized phenomena. So the the, the lived religion, the micro context can also affect um, the overarching, more um, um, institutionalized but essentially, let's say, macro context. Um, so looking at religion, you have a different view of religion that you would have um, if you were looking just at China. Uh, but at the same time, these local religion are not just doing religion and affecting themselves. Uh, all these very small communities are affecting the overall pictures of, of Chinese tradition in general. Um, there is the idea that through practice, you can see even more how the boundaries between different traditions are not that strong, and, and through practice, you have because of particular performances, you have cross boundaries phenomena. So, you have new hybrid identities that can come up um, through the study of um, and the, through, through really the practice of religion. And, and these hybrid identities can really help us to rethink the knowledge and, and the spectrum of Chinese religions that we have. And so, because you through practice you create new hybrid identities, then automatically you have to think of, you You have a creation of new paradigm that can refine also um, conceptual categories. When we look at practice, um, you look at concepts in practice, but practice, and, and, is, is, um, and this is a kind of related to what I just said. Um, rituals or practice can create new identities, new identities can create a new paradigm. So somehow the study of religion in practice can help us to have a more continuous and constructive dialogue with a sphere of theories and methods. So you don't study practice per se, but the study of religious practice can help you to rethink theories and methods. Um, And the fact is Chinese religion singular and the way to say the old Chinese religious landscape is very much pra- is, is very much practical. Um, so practice in religion becomes crucial in China because of a pragmatic behavior that characterizes the Chinese. And this is another reason why it's important to look at religion in practice. And you, and you have seen from these different um, chapters, but um, overall, there is this idea that there is no religion in China. Of course, not from scholars in our field, uh, but from scholars not in Chinese studies or not in Chinese religions. There is the understanding that there is no religion in China. But I have been told this sentence I don't know how many times, uh, or that China is very secularized. But to look at small communities and look at really these practices. You you notice how that's not the case. Um, so. There have been a number of scholars thinking whether or not you can use the term secularization, secularism, and the secularization when it comes to China, and that this is an ongoing dialogue um, and, um, and also heated debate, um, because in truth China is very lively when it comes to religious practice. And this kind of approach can really show you that. Um, many of these chapters actually talk to the chapters of the other two volumes. Uh, for instance, Paul Katz, in the first chapters, he looks at legal system in China. So somehow relates a little bit to the understanding of Sharia and the, and, and the Islamic uh, legal system that Tsai lin also mentioned in his chapter in the volume two. And there is the idea that there is a secular legal system and then you have the religious legal system. But religious legal system is not really affecting the secular sphere, and that's not really true. And and, that, and, if, and you as a scholar of Islam, you also know how the Sharia, you also, it, it, it also affects the non-religious sphere. And so so he has been, uh, Paul Katz has been writing a book about um, the continuum, the judicial continuum that he sees between the religious spheres and the non-religious sphere. So the practice of justice and, and how the religious sphere can actually affect and be part of a much larger domain Nicholas Broy look at digits. We have two chapters about food um, and not because I'm Italian, I have to say. <laughs> um, and one is by Nicholas Broy and he looked at the vegetarianism. And this was um, something that was missing at the conference and it was very much requested to have it in the books because vegetarianism is, is an important idea. Let's use the, the, the English term. Uh, and has been expressed in different ways in China throughout history, according to the uh, particular tradition that you're looking at. So Nicholas gave a very nice overview of different instances of vegetarianism in Chinese religious landscape, and then focus on yin Tao and jiaijiao, two particular traditions in the modern time. Also rethinking that vegetarianism, what actually means to be vegetarian for them and what that implies in terms of the kind of practice that they do. tsai um, and Ren uh, look at uh, not necessarily vegetarian food, uh, look at food and meal sharing in the Christian communities. He has been doing an amazing work uh, in uh, Zhejiang uh, and different other provinces in China he, um, and also in uh, Taiwanese uh, Christian communities and um, Protestant communities and going and living with them and see the role of um, eating together Um, the practice of eating together, that kind of impact that they had on the understanding of religion for the community and vice versa. I also have to say that um, Tsai Ren was present at the conference and he passed away two months after um, we published his chapter. So this chapter is is, his very very last publication he had. And of course, it was a, a big loss for everyone. Uh, we lost a friend and a fantastic colleague and an amazing scholar of Christianity. And so we decided to dedicate one of the volumes, the last one that got published, um, to him. Um, and But it, it's not just that volume. We really wanted to dedicate the entire project to him um, since his de- very, very early departure from us. Um, Staying in food somehow, Um, this is something that Paul Katz, a chapter that Paul Katz really wanted, thinking of my cat, so you see how um, chapters and and scholarship can be inspired by very different things, Um, but there is the idea of protecting life and the protection of life and, and animal protection. Um, that had developed uh, in China, uh, not just in, in Buddhist context, mostly in Buddhist context, but also beyond that. So Shukvampun is really looking at the idea of animal protection and protecting life um, in connection with the building of a nation. So this particular religious practice and how he had interacted Again, with the state, uh, with, well, not just with the state, but also with a, a very different political and, and, and social and ideological framework that you had in the Republican period. Francesca Tarocco looked at technologies of salvation, so she looking at media and technology. That's something else that also was missing at the conference, but it's not missing in the Chinese religious landscape. And, and you have different ways to use the media. There are different arguments about the role of media and technology in China. Uh, this since some many scholars look at continuity, so how uh, media and technology are actually continue something that is already present in the past, that just change the shape. And other scholars are looking at rupture, so how the presence of media technology had a, an effect and a big impact on cardinal pillars of traditional practice, for instance. And Francesca is looking uh, more at continuities, but presenting the use of media and technology as technologies of salvation. So that's the way that um, the expression that she used in um, in a specific chapter. Um, and um, looking also at the charismatic role of um, this um Kind of the charisma that if you communicate with media or technology, the making of DVD, so the 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 religious leader also take on a new role and a new, um, new qualitative value. And really, she she is really looking at the 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 impact on charisma um, through the use of media and technology. Uh, Elena Valusi wrote this very long chapter about gender, um, looking at both um, intellectual history of the concept and how it was not, you know, gender is not really a Chinese concept. Um, let's say it was the way that we use gender, uh, or the way that we use feminism is something that has started later on, but you find some form of it also uh, within China, in the same way that science uh, per se, like a term is a new term, but scientists was present before, even before the same can be said about gender and gender discourses. But she's looking at how um, women um, saying that you know you work on gender studies and very often you don't work on religion, uh, you don't include religion, you look at relig- you work on religion, you don't include women. So she tried to combine the two and looking at um, um, important women uh, and, and how the reconceptualization of gender actually gave a different role and different space for women in religion. So in that sense she's combining intellectual history and, and the real practice. Yaning Kao is also looking at women. Uh, but again, going to a non Han tradition to Bejuan and looking at a network of shamans, looking at um, women, uh, the role of women in that particular tradition. And there are the kind of satellite concepts that came up um, that are important for Bejuan. Um, and one is the idea of networks and then a particular way to define networks of lineage slash networks and the idea of kinship. So this is a chapter that has more than one. Looking at the specific practice of female shamans have developed uh, more than one uh, concepts. The idea of networks is also in the uh, in the um, chapter by Julian Pass that he looks at networks and globalization at the same time. And again, and this time looking at communities, uh, Chinese communities abroad. So the role of Chinese communities in Europe, and he has been doing a number of study on on the, the, uh, the reality in France, looking at where, who, and what do we find abroad? So what kind of places of worship are the heart of religious networks, where the actors that construct and, and use religious networks, and what kind of religious knowledge and norms are imported into this community through religious networks, and why, how is it's important to have also someone from the Chinese embassies in France when you want to have an inauguration of the Buddhist temple in, in um, Chinese Buddhist temple in France, for instance. So he's really, like I said before, the, the importance of looking at how traditional concepts may be used uh, and, and change and, and shape religious life in diaspora communities. And also looking at China, outside China, Wei Xianghuang uh, wrote a chapter on Falun Gong, um, that looking at the idea of transnationalism and globalization. So she has been doing a number of a study of uh, legal cases um, about Falun Gong against the Chinese government in defense of Falun Gong um, outside China and and how the Falun Gong practitioners have been using this to make a particular discourse about them in China. Um, So it's a kind of what she kind of proposes is is a transnational view of Chinese society and culture as no longer constrained by the boundaries of the nation state. So somehow she ends um, giving some, quest, some answers to questions that we pose in um, the volume two when we said we need more ideas on diaspora communities and and the the the, the role of diaspora communities also in redefining what is happening at home in China. Um, so that's pretty much um, what has happened in volume three. Hmm.
0: Well, Steffi, the, the three volumes together uh, really make a monumental impact, I think, and I hope people will uh, will read these and 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 take uh, the uh, proposals for kind of future directions to heart. Um, I think they would uh, certainly make uh, our scholarship more fun and collaborative, if nothing else. But I think it will also. Uh, it was
1: lots of fun. Uh, it was lots of fun, yeah, and also, it much uh, and I think these are free books, so our. Three unities, if you like, um, mm-hmm. but also there are three parts of the, compre- of the more larger and comprehensive work. So it can be seen as a three parts of one project. Mm-hmm. A project that is, that is never ending because, you know, <laughs> things evolved, uh, the world changed, uh, religion yeah. then changed and you have to rethink how to write and think about them.
0: Yeah. Well, um, congratulations on uh, uh, completing this, this really uh, um, very successful project. I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us about things uh, you've been working on since or things uh, you have coming out in the future.
1: Um, well, I, I've been doing, keep doing work on education. Um, I was kidding. I'm not teaching too much uh, <laughs> uh, right now. Um, I'm very happy with that. Uh, but I really, uh, I, I like the idea, the, the, the concept of education. Um, that's something that I started when I was doing my PhD and my time in Taiwan. And I was so close to many, for Xuoyuan, to many Buddhist institutes. Um, so right now I have a project. Uh, it's a multi-year project. I was supposed to end last year, but then because of COVID, got a very, very nice extension. Um, also founded by the Jian Jinguo Foundation for International Scholarly Exchange and is directed by me and Elena Valusi, so another friend from Volume 3. And we, is about religious diversity in modern Sichuan. Um, so again, it's a collaborative project. Uh, we have 12 scholars included coming from China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um North America and Europe uh, so different uh, and New Zealand I keep forgetting um the scholars um she's uh, Emmy um Emmy's from Emmy Hometag Jun Tarba is from New Zealand uh, works in America so she's between two different continents. So many friends that were that are here like Taon uh Emmy, uh, Elena, of course, and me, um, and others are all included in this, um, in this other project on Sichuan. We are looking at interreligious networks and intrareligious networks. We really want to do a local study of religion, local study of communities, um, and see how these um, local practices are related to the overarching patterns that we find, with, you know, the official history of religion. Um, so again, a team project, and I've been working two different sub-pro- sub-projects within it. One is the, looking at the one particular district in Chengdu, Chinyan district, and where you have um, Buddhist temples, Taoist temples, of course, and Christian churches, Protestant Christian churches, Catholic churches, mosques. And and then this is the one that still has to be completed. Um, and it's... Um, and, and looking at how communities in the Republican period and today are related to the different tradition um, that is so the all of a space, of so a one small, small, you know, relatively speaking, because when it comes to China, the idea of small in China is big in any, anywhere else. But this is the small district with eight, eight 800,000 people, I think, living there. But it's the small district because Chengdu, I think, is right now 17, 18 millions of people living in, in the city of Chengdu. So in this very small district, how the space has affected the way that a community is uh, interacting with different religious traditions. Uh, so the role, really the active role of space in defining their interaction with a very diverse uh, form of religious practice. And the other project is looking at Han Buddhism only, but outside Chengdu. Um, so I went to Neijian uh, Xuanin, Nanchon, Luzhou, uh, of course, nation, Chongqing, because I look in a Republican period at that time, Chongqing was, um, uh, was not separated. So it was in the Sichuan area. And again, it's very tricky to talk course, about Sichuan. You have a very different geography. You have Sichuan, but it's, it's organized in a very different way. And, and, I, and I look at education. So the development of schools and training for the Sangha or form of training uh, the Sangha gives to lay people, for instance, teaching the militaries during the Sino-Japanese War or using temples as a place to host the militaries and how that had an impact on the space, on the sacred space of the temple and of the role of, of Buddhism in the local community. And then I look at women. And so I've been looking at invisible women, that's how I call it, Um, but I put in, in kind of parentheses, so women that were very much visible to the local communities, Buddhist communities unknown, um, but are becoming invisible now simply because they brought less, uh, there are less um, documents about them. But if you look at that particular time, they were quite relevant. And even today, in that particular lo- small local space, they are still remembered. And of course, this idea of invisibility um, is not just related to women. I found also a number of important monks that were charismatic leaders in the Republican period in that particular small place in, in Sichuan, but are hardly remembered now uh, in the national official history of China, uh, of Chinese Buddhism, for instance. Um, so this is a work only on Buddhism, mostly um, education and women, or somehow, let's say, but then when I realized there were also a lot of monks that are not much known, I tried to talk about invisible monastics, non-eminent monks, non-eminent eminent nuns, There is uh, Mark Rowe, a scholar of Japanese Buddhism, McMaster. It has this long term project to give more visibility to the non eminent monks because they have a special role, of non eminent monastics because they have a special role in the local communities. And I kind of follow that particular approach in looking at um, in, um, individuals, mostly uh, monastics but also lay Buddhists that are not really remembered in, uh, in the Chinese history of Buddhism but are important pillars of the Republican history of specific local communities. So I look at diversity. So now I try to define the concept of diversity and asking Chinese scholars how they would think of diversity and how they would define the concept diversity, what kind of Chinese native terms they might might use to look at diversity. and I'm still working on these concepts because Christian Mayer wants me in his project. <laughs> at least I've done two concepts for him. <laughs> That's the way that we start looking at concepts and, and then numbering them. Um, but the concept I think the project on Sichuan is something that has been very dear to me and where I look at many, many calls that and and, and, and questions that um, these three volumes have put forward that somehow I keep them in mind when I also look at the diversity, the diversity of Buddhism, the diversity of community, the diversity of space and ritual practices in, in particular Sichuan. But as I said, this is a project that is, again, um, is led by me and Elena Valusi, but luckily is a It's it's a team project, and we have Islam, we have Christianity, we have spirit writing movements. Because then, you know, also the borders are very, very, so very difficult to to define, even within between Buddhism and other traditions sometimes. So this is pretty much what I'm working on now. Besides being on Zoom and teaching on Zoom, of course.
0: Well it sounds like uh, a lot a lot more work to be done uh, so so good luck and uh, I'm glad uh, the three volumes continues to inspire you and it certainly uh, has inspired me and I hope it will inspire others So thank, thank you thank
1: you Thank you Christian
0: That was my conversation with Stefania Trevagnin about concepts and methods for the study of Chinese religions, a three volume set published with De Gruyter in 2019 and 2020.